Hello there, dear listeners, and welcome to episode five of the Secret Lives of Leaders podcast. And today we bring you an awesome lady by the name of Jess Butcher, aka Jess Simpson, to her friends and family, who is the co-founder of the one billion dollar valued startup in the augmented reality space, Blipper. Some of you may think it's a big advertising giant, but actually the way they think about it is entirely different as you're here. So if you want to know more about what uh, Jess thinks about her business and the way it's going, then Rich, why don't you give us some insight on what they're going to hear about today? Yeah, so Jess was really great to interview. We actually recorded this in a a very small uh, library at Nick Jenkins's house and uh, with actually a live audience because we did it at the unconference that that we were at. So there were about 20 people in the room listening live, which was quite cool to do. Uh, And Jess kind of goes into uh, what what it's like to build a startup, but also kind of raise a family at the same time. So I think it was really interesting to hear her perspective about juggling all the things that kind of go on in life and, uh, and, and how to build a huge business app at the same time. So should we, uh, should we get on with it? Yeah, I don't think anyone wants to hear any more from us. Let's just hear from our lovely guest, Jess. From Runway East Studios in London, welcome to the Secret Lives of Leaders. Today, Rich and I are recording in a very special location in Stockton House, the home or rather palace of another podcast guest, Mr. Moonpig himself, the fearless dragon, Nick Jenkins. Why? Well, we're at an unconference where 65 founders are responsible for creating and delivering all the content over the weekend. Think of it like if Burning Man did a conference, but less drugs, or at the very least, I've not seen any yet. Have you? No, no, she didn't want to mention it. We'll just get rid of the delay, I guess. Yeah. Um, anyway, we're running off topic. Today's guest is the co-founder of one of Europe's unicorns. So we welcome Jess Butcher of augmented reality giant Blipper. Founded in 2011, Jess has over 250 colleagues and as of 2016 raised a total of $100 million, valuing the business at a reputed $1 billion. And it's also reported that they turned down an acquisition of £1.5 billion. Uh, that might have been the wrong currency, but it's all the same now, so yeah, it doesn't really exactly. matter. <laughs> uh, so Jess, I'm assuming your time is money. Perhaps we can crack on with the important stuff. Like, how are you today? And are you having a nice weekend? I'm having an awesome weekend. Thank you very much for having me. Good. And where have you just been? I've just been to Stonehenge. Yeah, it's a bit random. Not many guests that we have have literally just come back from Stonehenge. What did you learn? Uh, not very much. We didn't pay for any additional information. We did a bit of Googling in the car on the way there. Um, I think the stones came from Ireland. That's that's my one bit of information about Stonehenge. Pretty sure that's not true. Okay, well, <laughs> money can't buy knowledge. So, um, okay, let's crack on with a few usual uh, sound bites that yeah. Rich really hates. So, I'm going to ask you some quick fire questions. Um, so, right place to start off with this one, but countryside or city? Countryside. Okay, England or America? England. Augmented reality or virtual reality? Augmented reality. Pokemon Go or Mario Run? Nah. Pokemon Go. <laughs> Jealous. Running or walking? <laughs> Fell walking. And cheese or wine? Wine. And cocktail hour or cocktail hour? Cocktail hour. Good answer. Very good. Okay, so to open things up, can you give our listeners that don't perhaps already know, uh, just let us know what a 30 second Blipper pitch is? Sure. So Blipper is the world's first visual browser, which means that it's the eye of your device acting like a turbocharged version of your own eyes. So look at the physical world around you 
instantly recognize it and use image recognition to return relevant, engaging, entertainment, entertaining information based on what the camera sees. So, And what was the original pitch? If you think back to your first pitch deck, what did that kind of sound like? The pitch deck changed every week, every month. In the first, it's still changing, yeah. frankly. Um, so this is just so we're clear, just so everyone knows, that was literally her elevator pitch on April Fool's Day. So if you fucking believe that, <laughs> then so yeah, tomorrow hopefully back to the normal. normal. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, now tell tell us what the original one was then. Um, it can was you remember still, it? Yeah, I I think I can. I think I can. It would depend on who we're talking to. So, for example, when we went to the print industry, we called it the Harry Potterification of print, for example. So it was making a, a, a pitch that resonated with that particular audience. For brands, it was it was turning their product packaging on, making it interactive. So it did vary even back then, according to who we were talking to. To techies, we could talk augmented reality. But to branding and marketing professionals, we never did because we knew that the tech wasn't as important as the behavior and the magic of physical things coming to life, which mm. was effectively what we were selling them back then. So it's quite a techie product. Yeah. Um, are you technical? No. And in fact, that was my value in that founding team is um, I work with brilliant product and technology um, experts. And they came to me because precisely because I am an idiot with technology. It was my job to take what was bleeding edge, terrifying tech and kind of make it accessible to everyday Joes. So how can we articulate this in a way that is fun um, and uh, delights people and sparks their imagination rather than scares them with nerdy augmented reality, mixed Mm. reality type of terminology. So uh, that was very much my role in the early days. Did you talk about augmented reality in 2011? We did because it was starting to get a lot of interest. Um, It was a buzz sort of new bright, shiny thing that particularly, you know, would capture investors' imagination. It also, with certain people, was so exciting that we were kind of box-ticking an innovation box. And for some clients, that really worked to our advantage. You know, they wanted to be seen to be doing the next new trendy tech thing. So we would play to that when talking to them, but obviously then hope to try and convert them into longer-term advocates for what it was rather than moving on to another innovation the next week. Yeah. Okay, so you've just sort of described yourself as a, uh, you know, non-tech idiot. So where does a non-tech idiot um, with your pedigree start her journey? So uh, going back to, like, you know, being brought up, what kind Mm -hmm. of family did you have? What kind of lifestyle was it? Take us through your first 18 years from birth, obviously. Okay. Um, the, 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 The quick snapshot. So very boring an incredibly happy middle-class upbringing, two parents still together, middle child of three. Not an entrepreneurial family. I'm actually the daughter of a politician, um, and but he was probably always wanted to be an entrepreneur, more so than politics. So he kind of was always coming up with business ideas and brainstorming them with me. And I think throughout university, I kind of thought that's what I wanted to do. I just like creating things. I wanted to always to be my own boss um, and to to build things. I love technology as far as it disrupted existing ways of doing things. So post-university, I kind of um, followed in a rather messy career path, lots of sort of two to three year stints at companies 
that I felt were disrupting the, the, the model for their respective industries. So it started with a company called Fresh Minds, which was disrupting recruitment, for example, and research. Loved that. And then sort of moved to a travel business, moved to a trade business. And my role was always to do that sort of front end evangelism of taking a disruptive, a new take on an established industry and trying to get consumers excited about a new way of doing that. So a mixture of communications, partnerships and selling. So what was your career path then? So you talk about, um, you know, mixture of, you know, selling and, and, and consumer facing stuff. But what, you know, what was your job when you started? Um, and what was your next job? Yeah, Take us through a little yeah, bit of that. So, so how did you go from that to like found management, a big business? Yeah, account management, business development uh, roles, uh, you know, account director roles in my 20s, partnerships. Um, the first significant, I guess, running a, uh, a strategy role I had was at a company called Isango, where I was the head of the partnerships B2B side of that business, which was actually where I met Rish, my co-founder, who was the head of product. So we were employee numbers three and four behind the two co-founders. Um, but a lot of the sort of partnerships, BDing I was doing was always, always had a sort of marketing side to it as well. Um, but I'd never really been, I was never really that fast by job titles per se. Um, but I also, at that stage, had a tendency to get quite bored quite quickly. So I... I was always embarrassed about my CV for a long time because I thought it said no sticking power, gets bored easily and susceptible to unscrupulous recruitment consultants, which was true. Mm. Um, but with hindsight, I now realise that that tapestry of experience that I created in my 20s was what made me a brilliant startup professional in my in my 30s because of the network that it had created. I knew a little bit about a lot of things a lot of different sectors. I knew how to talk branding spiel to FMCG companies. And then I knew the the buzzwords within retail when talking to a client there mm. and could adjust the pitch according to the little bit of information that I had there. Plus, I knew somebody who would always know somebody that worked within any business I wanted to knock on the door of. So, so network. Network was everything. And I think ultimately that was that and my sort of natural inclination towards words and you know how, how we pitch and and how we translate the tech into something fun branded and accessible uh, I guess was what appealed to the boys about bringing me in on the founding team for Blipper in, in 2011. Mm. And you went to Oxford University so were you particularly academic? Um, you I did, I'm not no I was the only person that I knew at uh, Oxford doing history that got B for history <laughs> in my A-levels okay. and I tried really hard yeah, okay. um, but I, I, I was the last year that could take the exam for Oxford and if you took the exam and then got in on interview you got a 2E offer mm. but I was told my exam uh, paper was solid but most uninteresting which I thought was a nice <laughs> way to phrase it uh, so I basically got there on the skin of my teeth but I loved it I was a historian, just being in Oxford as far as the colleges and history of it all is is stunning. Great friends and, and a brilliant network now professionally from amongst my friendship group. Yeah. And then um, after that, but before you started Blipper, you also spent some time in Kenya, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, was that your first startup experience? Yeah, I did a startup after university. I did a um, an e-zine um, that I did for about six months before I realised I had zero business acumen and really confidence to do it properly. Um, but that wet my appetite. And then um, the year before Blipper, I had a bit of one of those sort of late twenties. Okay, that's not fair. Early thirties crisis <laughs> where I kind of said, 
I don't want to be doing what I'm doing anymore. I'm going to take a year out. I followed a very new boyfriend out to Africa for um, nine months in total and um, came back um, an entrepreneur, having started my first business over there um, and engaged um, with somebody that was prepared to bankroll me in my entrepreneurial endeavors. So <laughs> there, it was a combination of serendipity that I kind of made happen by taking the leap of faith that I was just going to jump out of the rat race. But it was also, you know, the right time to sort of evaluate all of all of that and do a bit of a Muhammad to the mountain year. And what was it? Because you talk about this uh, random startup in Kenya without telling us what it was. Were Sorry, you yeah. Or- augmenting society over there or? Uh, no, it was actually, it was a tour company. So I was going to paint a school or teach somebody English and decided that I, the, the company that I'd met Rish at was a travel experiences company. And I figured that I could market and sell this incredibly impoverished part of Western Kenya, that would be the biggest thing I could leave it Mm. is some lovely branding that explained why you didn't just need to do beach and safari in Kenya. You could go to the tea plantations, visit the fishermen communities and get and see the sort of ancient rock formations and the bird life, you know, and try and diversify the perception. Again, I guess I was trying to disrupt an industry Mm. that, that established African tourism perception into something that was broader but also educated and 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 help the perception of Africa plus could contribute to that economy so much more valuable than a coat of paint were the 10 jobs that I ended up leaving behind plus an opportunity for people to now leave that part of Africa being able to talk about it and having seen things they wouldn't have seen otherwise and have you thought about bringing blipper to Africa absolutely so as the next big mobile frontier yeah I mean we can't do every every um geography at the same time but we would love to i think there's so much scope blipper now for example is an incredible tool for illiterate populations you know you can't we'll come on to talk a bit more about blipper but one of the applications of the tech that i love is that search right now is in inherently limited to our vocabulary you can't google something if you can't spell it you know you just can't but you can look at anything and potentially get a response back and that response doesn't have to be written or verbal either it can be a sound file it can be an augmented reality sort of vision of what those ruins looked like when they were first built and I think the ability to educate within illiterate populations has got huge huge potential Mm. but there's still I mean smartphones are doing pretty well there but they're still not sort of a mass adopted no sure so um just like moving on to as we say the the flipper story so I hear that it started in a pub with an argument over a uh, pound coin? No. Okay. Uh... Thanks for the fucking research, right? <laughs> if you actually read the notes, it says a £20 note. Is that right? It was a, I don't know, £5, £10 note, £20 note. I'm not note. sure. As long as you don't know your own story. I, and I can't see how story. we could have researched it. I can't remember the exact denomination of the note. So Rish and Omar, our CEO and CTO, uh, respect, uh, um Respectfully. Respectively. Respectively. That's respectively. Right respectively. Let's yeah. start that again. So Rish and Omar, our CEO and uh, CTO, um, respectively, they um, were working together at AXA. They were, had become great friends and they were sort of playing around with a lot of new technologies, one of which at the time was augmented reality. Um, and Omar, being the incredibly talented nerd that he is, would play with it and had was telling Rish about it and had said, you know, Technically, you could overlay anything over a physical object. And Rish simply picked up the the, the note and said, so here's the queen. Um, you could 
you're telling me you could put my face over the Queen's face on this £20 note? And I was like, yeah, in theory I could. But of course, being the type of person he is, that wasn't, he didn't want that to be a theory. He went away and he made it happen. And within days he was showing the £20 note, looked at through a phone with Richard's smiling face appearing you know, over the Queen's. And it was there that the genesis of the idea of, wow, you know, what could this mean for the owners of the physical world? Mm. How they could effectively digitise any object um, uh, or image, whether it be a newspaper, a cereal box, you know, a building, anything that you could look at now could potentially be digitised, um, which gave rise to a lot of um, ideas around sort of the, is it the QR code on steroids? And yes, it was to a certain extent back then. But what could you do with that? There are so many things that you could do with the power and potential of that technology that that's when they kind of said, right, let's come together. Let's think about who we can bring in. Uh, luckily, I was one of those phone calls um, that said, well, what sort of business models could we create around this? How do we um, how do we start to think about something that will scale and being part of a, a new technology movement? And where did you meet them? As you mentioned, um, is it uh, Rish that you met in your old companies? What about Omar? Where does he come from? So Omar um, was a friend, the brother of one of Rish's great friends. And he pulled him in knowing that what uh, an incredible technical guy he was. He pulled him into projects he was working in AXA, I believe. So quite um, serendipitous starting point, as in you don't really knew, you didn't really know each other too well. No, but... I mean, Rich and I had been great friends and working in this other startup, we had got to the stage where we kind of felt like we could have been running the business better ourselves. Mm. You know, we were quite entrepreneurial anyway, which is why we joined such an early stage startup, had loads of ideas on a lot of the business trips. When we were traveling, we'd always end up brainstorming other businesses that we would do. And I think we've kind of pegged each other as potential business partners in the future with very um, complementary non-overlapping skills and then Omar and Steve so our other co-founder who's a brilliant creative uh, and UX and experienced guy they were working on innovation projects at AXA and had just they were just gelling so well they were loving their project work they were very creative They, they created a real unit and I guess I came in to support them with with the sales, marketing, sort of commercial side of things. So for people that might be starting up businesses in new areas that are kind of uncertain, um, I guess you'd be an absolute expert in how to get funding in a business like that at the beginning. So you've raised $100 million to date. How did you raise your first, what was it? Like how much did you raise in the first year? How did you do it? It's so different and unique. You know, sure, and sure. I, how, what were those conversations like? We actually have had a pretty atypical um, funding route. We didn't raise actually in that first year because we found an inadvertent revenue stream that we grew the first team members into where we've aspired to sell tech and to be a platform. Um, But in order for that to sell, we kind of needed to help our clients produce content. So we ended up um, building an effective agency of designers um, and um, technical sort of builders that we started selling projects to. And that started out a first sort of seven or 8K type of typical deal to 20 to 50 is the average size. And it was inadvertent, but we almost became a victim of our own success there because you know then we got all these agency revenues that actually told the wrong story about what we were trying to be and what we were trying to mm-hmm. achieve. Um, the agency was the best thing we did because it, it it got us revenue to a point at which it gave us credibility and we had a decent enough team to then start to 
think about going for funding for the broader mass platform business mm. that we wanted to create rather than the agency business. Um, so it was at that stage that we started to um, talk to the investment community. But it was a lot of it was serendipity. So our first investor was Qualcomm Ventures, quite a strategic partnership, very well known within our field already. You know, hadn't played around with a consumer angle to the tech. So they were very interested in our business model and sort of sharing information on the tech. Um, and that was, we didn't kind of need that relationship, but we wanted it because it was such a great um, addition to our knowledge and our sort of strategic support in, in the senior management team. And it was a good marriage of like-minded individuals. Hmm. So the first round was almost not for the cash, but more for the relationship that we had. Um, and then going forward, you know, the next round was it was a year later. And by that stage, we were almost all already looking at numbers that meant that the pool of VC in the UK was going to be very unlikely, actually. Firstly, they were still wary of AR. They were a bit slow in, the, in, in Europe when it came to AR funding. Um, and we, you know, we, we didn't really find anybody that was going to work for us at that stage. So at that point, we went a different track altogether and you know, went for an investment management company that, that came at that stage. So, and then the last round was a, the Malaysian Sovereign Fund. So we haven't actually gone traditional VC at all, although so we've we know more that sort community. of global, just because you yeah. just, you know, it's a global opportunity. It's you yeah. know, changing vision on exactly. a phone kind of thing. It's been down to the individuals, I think, that we've worked with in, uh, as investors in mm. each of those different organisations. There's been a lot of serendipity, a lot of sort of referrals from existing investors to you know people that they thought we should talk to. So people have gravitated towards you rather than you having to go out yeah. and do the... I guess that comes with the whole uh, general consumer attitude. If I think of AR, I think of Blipper. So, you know, mm -hmm. but like positively, you can imagine why people would go to you in that circumstance. So um, just thinking back to the, uh, the the technology itself that you've been building. So one of the key problems with building new technology, let alone any technology, is adoption. If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner Vanta comes in. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more, getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. Just head to vanta.com slash secretleaders. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash secretleaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI, but until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. So, if you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. 
You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. All of this is possible with Personio. Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. So I've got a couple of questions. One is, um, how the hell did you manage that? Because mm-hmm. uh, that's the trickiest, especially like in your area, probably more than most. Um, the second is, how did you manage to convince people in the consumer side? Well, in the brand side to consumers to keep your logo on everything. Yeah. Because that's probably the best bit of branding. That's why when I think of augmented reality, I think of Blipper. Sure. Otherwise, I'd have absolutely no idea. Sure, sure. So, yeah, and the second question actually answers the first question. So we well, are, We've done them. Great. Yeah, the, we're a B to B to C. So we've never actually spent any money or energy on saying to consumers, download the Blipper app because Blipper's cool. Because frankly, there was no point in consumers ever doing that unless they had a reason and something that was interactive in front of them to blip. Uh, and back then, we were still sort of manually configuring tomato ketchup bottles to equal augmented reality recipe book, Pepsi can to equal uh, an interactive game that you could play with a Pepsi can. So it wasn't like you could just take your phone out and look at the world around you and get information. So therefore, why would we spend money on getting people to download an app that didn't do anything practical, you know, as soon as they downloaded it? So the strategy was to work with as many brands as we could to just turn small things, occasional things interactive that people might stumble across and just tell them on the product that it was interactive, what to do. So it is hard because if you've got a small product, putting a download the Blipper app, hold up your phone, and, and hold it still, you know, and wait a minute, wait sure you've got a 3G connection. You can't do all of that communication on um, a chocolate bar, but you can do it on in a newspaper, for example. So we had this hybrid approach of going to brands and media owners. That was the, the sort of launch strategy um, where we would tell them we can turn their products interactive um, and concurrently we're doing this big campaign in Stylist or in the Metro, so there'll be a bit of noise in the market at the same time as your, your product goes live with our ridiculous logo on. Which brings me to your second question, how do you convince a brand like Pepsi or Cadbury's to put your brand new logo that no one's ever seen and your app icon on their packaging um, when you're an unknown and you've got a silly name? So... That was that was hard, but we were also very conscious of the fact that we were first to market with something really cool. And if they wanted to do this, they kind of had to go with the best tech in the market. So we showed them everything that was out there and said, if you want to have people playing with your Pepsi cans, you want to point a difference next to Coke on the shelf, this is the tech. And the tech would always knock people's socks off. They'd just see it and have an incredibly, and still do, an incredibly visible reaction a delighted reaction to seeing, you know, a can grow wings and pretend to fly Mm -hmm. in your hand or, you know, uh, still photographs changing in front of you and 3D um, uh, applications occurring. So they loved that. But then they had two solutions. If they wanted to use that, they could either build their own app and ask, which is what a lot of people wanted to do back then. Um, Well, I, I want it to be a Pepsi app that they download to interact with a Pepsi can. And it became a sort of very gentle process of saying, really, do you really? Because 
the consumer doesn't want an app for every single product that they that they that they buy. Why would they download an app just for a single product? We want to build a platform whereby you can sit next to other products. Say Pepsi's doing a campaign with Domino's, and you know you all live on supermarket shelves next to each other. You know the the model made sense, but it was a leap of faith to get the right brand marketers or brand managers to say, okay, then, you know, that was the point at which we'd have a sort of 80% drop off. So that, download the Blipper app and yeah. get the whole experience for all the brands, but you're on level playing field. Yes. And I guess the hard part is always convincing the first two brands that sitting next to each other is something they do every single day, however they like it or not. They do it on a supermarket. Why wouldn't they do it in your reality? Exactly. And it took a very specific type of individual at those companies to say yes. And sometimes it was the most senior guy and sometimes it was some junior intern that was just loved innovation and wanted to make herself a champion within mm. the company and had the tenacity to push that through at her business and we could never sell by job title and that was really frustrating to me because we thought well we'll go to um the 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 innovation people or we'll go to um the the brand managers and it was all over it was mobile marketing it was print marketing and then we realized that we were actually selling bleeding edge tech to the old world of marketers because mm. we were turning cardboard interactive billboards we were turning packaging interactive now they're not considered the cool marketers at these companies the cool marketers are doing all the digital and the social stuff whereas our clients were the sort of quite old school marketers um which then we realized we had to price accordingly because we said we, we were going to go to market. We just pay for the number of interactions you get. You know, you, you're familiar with that, right? That's mm. how online marketing works. But these guys didn't pay like that. They bought billboards for X thousand pounds for and circulation figures at newspapers. So they would say to us, oh, but I don't know how many interactions are. Can I just give you seven thousand pounds and you'll do it? And we were, we were never going to get seven thousand pounds on the paper blip model. <laughs> OK, we'll take that. And um, and that became the average amount that we built our, our revenue streams into uh, back then. So it was a really interesting learning and we kind of had to shift and pivot as we talk to people about how, how to do that. But now I presume you can go into a digital model, which probably, as you say, isn't as good for you because it's never as good for any company. I mean, that's kind of the dream, what you just uh, described. The old school models work very well, but like, I guess what I was going to ask, and it, it leads straight into it, is how much has something like Snapchat completely disrupted your B2C strategy? Because all the filters, for example, augment reality around you. And with Facebook ripping Snapchat off, you know, how much is the Facebook camera now? You know, there's all this bleeding edge. Like, you've done so much of the hard work to get augmented reality to be a thing. Actually, the average Snapchat user doesn't think about Snapchat as using augmented reality. It's like, oh, cool, filter. But it's, it's not a filter. It's a whole augmented experience using your lens. So, And we see all of those as complementary technologies because we've also undergone quite a, a shift in emphasis and indeed in technology in the six years. So whereas we were very much known as an augmented reality company, we're kind of not anymore. Augmented reality is simply one content format that we can deliver based on visual recognition. We're a computer vision and artificial intelligence company now who does augmented reality very well and knows how augmented reality works best in all these different formats. So we have more data than pretty much anyone in the world about how consumers augmenting reality but that's almost just a sort of byproduct of one of the content formats 
What is most exciting is this visual browsing behavior and the ability to look at and recognize anything. And many times the appropriate response to that recognition will be augmented because it, there's a very physical aspect to what you're looking at and what you might want to learn about what you're looking at. But many times it could just be a buy now link of looking at a handbag or a shirt that you mm. like the look of or a flower. It's, it's simply a page that explains what that flower is or um, an audio guide to the work of art that you're looking at. You know, those are old school formats seemingly, but it's what's powering them and the relevancy of the content that delivers based on the recognition that is now all the technical focus and all the Snapchats and other AR and anything that's using the camera's eye is enhancing this as the behavior that we're a big part of. Okay, so I guess last uh, five years, six years, you've done all this uh, heavy lifting and the the industry's moved on super fast as well. So where do you think it will be in the next five to 10 years? What does that augmented reality journey look like? Like, how do you set out Blipper's vision around that? Well, the tech needs to be incredibly reliable. And I'd say where we are on the on the journey with the tech is to look at the brain of the eye. The brain and the eye within devices right now is still acting like a sort of a child. A child that's probably just approached um, junior school rather than infant school. You know, it kind of knows now, it can discern. It won't just say car, it will say Range Rover, what type it is. But it could get even smarter than that. And obviously there's so many different verticals within the world that are incredibly hard to recognise and uh, interpret and return the right results for. So it's got to get smarter, it's got to get instantaneous, it's got to get reliable, and it's got to be, it's got to cover everything. You know, that's where we see the computer browsing and vision space evolving. As far as AR is concerned, it, there's a lot of device um, development that has to happen concurrently. And, you know, it'd be really interesting to see what happens with wearables. I don't think any of us thought that Google Glass was the device, but it was a stepping stone device, as are the Snapchat glasses. Um, and this will revolutionise how this technology takes off. You know, if you can ask something as you're looking, I mean, our, our hope would be you, you're, you're having a conversation and you can just say blip, blip, blip him to link in and you can use facial recognition, you know, and that will be really, really exciting. It's something that terrifies people right now. So there's a, a huge number of things to get right on the privacy side, on the legal side, on, you know, the consumer behavior mm. side. Um, but the technology is there now. It's just being very careful about how it's rolled out. But I had like a quite a fun vision of, um, of, of obviously for around 10 or 20 billion exit to uh, Amazon and then integrating with Alexa. That'd be quite fun. That would be very cool. Maybe more than 20 billion. I don't want to insult you. (laughs) Maybe slightly more. But, you know, that'd be a really cool integration. I can see, like, there's a lot of practical technology you're developing that's useful for a company like Amazon, you know, that own the consumer. Yeah, and I think that's that's how we look at ourselves now, is we're a technology business that's that's pioneering and developing a lot of how this technology is going to work. The Blipper app is, you know, a part of that business, but it's not the whole business, you know, there's a lot more, and there's so many applications of this tech that we hope to work on with other engineers and, and within other businesses and things like science and medicine and in uh, engineering and architecture and education, you know, and it's not necessarily the case that every, all of those applications will be fired through Blipper, you know, that we just want to pioneer and, and, and just want to change the world. 
Just the classic. Yeah. No biggie. Yeah. Um, where do you see the exit coming from then? We just talked about Amazon. You've turned one down reportedly. You must have turned down more than one along the time. Silence. Okay. We can't talk about that. But where do you see the exit <laughs> coming from? We don't. You know what? We don't. We don't. We genuinely don't. And I know that people say that and, it, and you, you invariably think bullshit. Well, people mostly say that to their VCs who are like, wait, what? Yeah. <laughs> you don't. I know. Shit. Well, no, but it, we're not. What I love, I want to see, is a British technology company be a global technology mm. player. You know, there's so much. And then sell brilliant... to a Japanese bank. Well, <laughs> who knows? Who knows? It's not my decision, is the first answer, the first diplomatic sort of political answer I should give. Um, you know, we now have a lot of investors and, and co founders, but we're just so focused on building right now. And we want to own that journey. We're enjoying that journey too much to to want to hand over responsibility to anyone else. Mm. Um, so it's a very personal baby to all of the founding team and the early joiners and indeed the executive team now that we have in place. So we genuinely don't even talk about it that much. And and because we're so far away from realising that vision, it's kind of not a conversation point. Yeah, you know, until, until we've become a verb and this technology, until I'm seeing the person on the train next to me blipping the lady next to her's handbag or, uh, you know, people using it in conversation. Oh, did you blip, blip him? That was really cool. Or just seeing it happen. Mm. Then I'll feel like we're, we're in a place where we've made it. And, you know, this all this talk of funding and success. I like the Shazam have, thing, how that's just synonymous yeah, with like what you would do to record a song. Exactly. And uh, we're so far away from that that we're really not talking or even thinking exit. Fair. And do you see VR as a major competitor in any kind of way? I mean, I guess it's like mindshare of what someone can actually understand about all these new technologies. And mm. do you get thrown into the whole same area? We do. And I don't kind of understand why we do, because there's such different technologies. I mean, they share a lot of tech DNA. You know, there are people that can move between those two businesses when it comes to developing technology. Um, but they're both so awesome in such different um, applications. You know, in, within virtual reality, you are in another world, whereas the whole point of augmented reality is that you're in the physical world. You're in the here and now, interpreting the physical world or playing with it in some way. So they're, they're so, the sort of things that you would think to do with them are incredibly different. The user cases for both are, are so different. I love VR, but AR's here now. And that was the best thing for us about Pokemon Go because we've been we've been told so many times it's really cool what you're doing, but it's not really mass market yet, is it? And and we were saying yes, the phone's in everyone's hand. It's got brilliant camera. It's absolutely right now for mass market. Um, but that continued to come as a reservation until people have got face mounted um, uh, cameras. Then it's not going to happen. And Pokemon Go demonstrated in six days mm. that the time is ripe and the phone is absolutely ready for this um so it was brilliant for us because it excited the whole market again around ar and you know got everyone talking and the late adopters suddenly kind of thought oh okay mm -hmm. you know those those that were never brave enough to tick the innovation box five years ago were now people that were approaching us um rather than us trying to have to force them fair so moving away from the um the journey itself um, what do you actually do with your very little spare time? What's a typical week for you? I have no spare time. I have three children under four. So Blipper was my first startup and then I had another three startups in the last four years. 
So, um, what do I do? I watch Netflix. I clear up puke. I am a bit sleep deprived. Um, That's I have all from this, your husband, presumably. Yeah, he's yeah. terrible. He's yeah. terrible. Uh, I have this double life that I lead, where I even have two different names. So Jess Butcher is the entrepreneur and um, the the one that goes into London and goes to conferences and speaks and does media and pitches and um, and she's a lot more articulate than Jess Simpson, who's my other persona. She's the Hertfordshire mum of three who hangs out in coffee shops and knows all the people in the market and loves charity shop shopping and um, just doesn't dress very well and really can't string a sentence together. And I should add, you're, you've got me on maternity leave. I haven't been <laughs> Jess Butcher for a long time, hence not quite as uh, articulate as I normally am once I've been in the, in the business world for a while. Um, so, yeah, my life isn't, isn't it's not time for hobbies, put it that way. Fair. Okay, so uh, you just described two different types of yourself, but if you could describe yourself in one sentence, what would it be? Like, what, or, or, or are you going to stick with, well, Jess Butcher is this and Jess Simpson is that? I think I, yeah, that is me. I'm, I am, I, I'm not a schizophrenic, but I do have, I enjoy having those two different aspects to my personality because I think the thing I am first and foremost is a pragmatist who seeks to prioritize the important things in life and um you know won't I, I try not to let things get too big too out of control you know when something's not working change it and that's the same in my professional life as it is in my family life and I'm incredibly open honest oversharer across that divide so even though I have two different names and kind of two different lives they clash and I, I share in both, basically. The fact that I'm a parent is a huge part of the businesswoman I am as well. How do you think your friends would describe you? Um, driven, easily bored, um, alongside the oversharing and I hope lots of awesome things about how fun I am and funny and great friend, really thoughtful. This is usually the part. great parties. Yeah, this is usually the part where we, uh, we do our research and we get in touch with a friend of yours <laughs> and we get them to say, all the different stuff that they think is amazing about you, but we didn't do that this time. So, Rich, can you just uh, throw some superlatives in just to pretend that they've all said those things? Yeah, Jess's friend said she was great. Amazing. She, awesome. they're, uh, they're very talkative, your yeah. friends. Yeah, long sentences. Um, okay, so have you had many situations where you and your co-founders or investors disagree completely? So massive arguments or completely different ways of thinking because at the end of the day you're in a massively innovative space you can't all be imagining the same vision every single time so mm. what have you done in those situations um i'm fortunate that i haven't there's not i couldn't for example think of a a, a row where there's been such a division of opinion on something that you know ne nobody's wanted to back down um we're helped by the fact that the captain of our ship the ceo my co-founder rish he's an incredibly philosophical sort of gentle uh, character that everything is a um everything is talked about very openly very transparently um and he's a real visionary so on occasions where i have felt that a different track was required if i it, i've either i've either been able to convince him of that or he's been able to convince me of why it hasn't happened it, there's just good communication good communication amongst all of us as a team um, there's definitely been challenges with individuals you know in senior management that perhaps 
you know, we've hired a brilliant CV, but perhaps the wrong culture fit, where those have been the sleepless nights that I had in the early years. Um, but I had, um, those were the sleepless nights I had when I had to have difficult conversations with people. I'm, I'm a stereotype of not wanting confrontation, wanting people to like me, caring too much about that and wasting far too much emotional energy on it. Mm. Um, so as soon as we got to a point at the business where I didn't have to manage people, I removed myself from that because other people are better than that. Yeah. You know, they've got more even temperaments. And I recognised that and didn't need to be in the front seat of, of the people management. And um, once we got to a stage, and obviously that also corresponded with family and wanting more time for... Uh, to get home on time and not have to worry about you know the people management. So so you've just you've just named quite a few um, not negative qualities, but you know you, you sort of sound like you look we, at them weaknesses weaknesses. Yeah, you look at them, them as weaknesses. Absolutely. So instead, what are your best best attributes? What do you bring to the business, and what do you bring to the world as like the this is Jess Butcher. This is what I'm fucking awesome at. Hmm. Um, Modesty. I'm, yeah, well, <laughs> potentially. Yeah, I mean, I'm an oversharer. There's a negative and a positive to that. Um, because I find that I bring people into my confidence and I help with other people's confidence. Because I think the more you share about the times when you have, um, you know, either wavered or worried about things, you normalize it for other people and give them the confidence to go and do that. So, I'm a strong mentor and I do that a lot within business by um, you know, being incredibly honest about my journey and then getting other people to share. And it's always good to talk, you know, always. That's never a negative. Um, although my husband tells me I overshare and can be a little bit um, uh, dismissive of what I've achieved in a sort of rather British self-deprecating mm. way, um, which I'm, I'm working on, I'm working on. Sorry, I'm, we, we're now on my strengths rather than my weaknesses. And I just turned the strength question just into weaknesses. What are your strengths? Well, my husband tells me that I'm terrible at this. So Strength, yeah, people, I think. Okay. And perspective. Okay. Uh, getting things into perspective. So the last lesson, and you should be very good at this part, just listening to you, is on lessons, failures and advice. So it's just being critical. Yeah. So um, I guess even though Blip has been such a massive success... Um, you know, depending on your yardstick, I'm sure you'll always do, be British and say, well, you know, um, I guess there's been a few road bumps along the way. So uh, were there any major mistakes that you've made? And are there any that you can actually share that are insights and lessons for people? So ideally ones you've overcome. Um, and I guess what you've learned through the experience of that, because you talk about oversharing, but obviously part of oversharing is helping other people avoid such mistakes. Mm. Um, again sounds a little bit cliche don't, I don't believe in mistakes or failures because everything that hasn't worked out has really helped to fine tune us and, and move us on and I, I believe that on a business level and I believe it on a, on a personal level um, that your biggest failure is if you fail to learn from your failures so I you're think. basically saying that experience can't be seen as a mistake Never. And then some, often the negative experiences become, that give you the most positive outcomes. So we've, we had, and a lot of people would have had this experience, I think client relationships that have gone so sour, you know, either through an error or miscommunication, um, that you've really had to eat humble pie and go in and try and rebuild that relationship. And very often those relationships, because of the honesty 
that you're forced to display become the strongest client relationships because you've kind of gone through something with them. Uh, and we definitely had a lot of those uh, in the early days. I think the biggest mistakes that we made were always not acting quickly enough when we had made an error in judgment. Um, and that's every every starter um, can be guilty of that. But you don't have the time, you don't have the money. And unfortunately, that can mean being quite brutal about people, where people are the mistake. Um, and... You know, it seems quite callous, but you've got to just cull, get rid as soon as you realise that that's not working out for you. Which, of course, is something that you're bad at because you're a people person. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and, and that was something that, that definitely was my hardest learning. The other thing that I, I, I failed at was good delegation and identifying the need for really good management as opposed to experts you know i don't think i hire particularly well i get impressed by individuals who are really shiny at what they do at the expense of finding individuals that are very good at inspiring and managing other individuals and um that i i think damaged my side of the business um and kept us back um, in those first two years mm -hmm. and as soon as, and the, the thing that really helped with that was my first maternity leave then I had to learn to delegate I had to bring people in um, and it was a really formative um, time for me to not look over everybody's shoulder and have to check every email let other people make decisions in my absence and sometimes they were quite good decisions they were better than the decisions that I might have taken and that was my biggest learning yeah. to empower and everything will grow because we couldn't have scales mm. if I tried to cling on in the way that was my personal inclination at that time. Yeah, so actively losing control in mm. a positive kind mm. of mindset way. Mm. I guess on the subject of uh, delegation, we're going to uh, see if anyone has any questions from the crowd in a minute. But before we do that, <laughs> uh, just to inspire us, what is the best piece of advice you've been given by anyone? Um... Throw shit to the wall. <clears throat> Was that from your like husband again? No. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And uh, best piece of advice you could give to anyone? Um, this, is, this is like from your experience. Is it clean up after all the shit that's everywhere uh, all over your house? I would share that same piece of advice. I think the more opportunities you make, um, the, the the more things happen in your life, and it's then it's discernment between opportunities. The other thing. My, a key bit of advice is to create your personal board of advisors. I'd heard someone else say that and I really get it now because um, your company has got a board of advisors but you as an individual entrepreneur need one. And that is the, mentor, the mentoring, the informal mentoring network that you create around yourself where events like this conference are fantastic. You know, find people either side of the ladder of where you think you're going in your career and even in your life, not just your career. So, you know, if, if you're an entrepreneur, for example, and you're also intending to have a family, you know, identify people that have done that, that you can talk about, you know, some of the particular stresses and guilts and everything else, that time management issues that come from that. But it's really important to pay it down the ladder as much as it is to pay it, to, to listen and, and seek it up the ladder. Because, and that's not altruism that actually enables you to grow faster because by talking to people who are behind you on that journey and sharing what you've learned, sometimes that's the only time when you realize quite how far you have come. Yeah, it helps and you as reflect. entrepreneurs, you're always looking forward and never looking back. 
And there's a very cathartic process of spending time with somebody earlier on in their journey, sharing what you've learned and then going, Christ, yes, you know, I have, I have learned a lot, you know, and that, and, and that builds confidence then to climb the ladder ahead of you faster because you can get stuck on a rung occasionally. Okay. So believe in serendipity and pay it forward. Mm-hmm. Great. Do we... <laughs> Two questions probably. Thanks. Yeah. Have you collected them already? No. Okay. Does anyone have a question? No questions. I have one. Oh well, please stand up to the mic. It's a bit of a girly one. Maybe I'm expecting some kind of family-based uh, question. I don't want to catch you off guard, but being the resident family entrepreneur. <laughs> no. No. Okay. So just make one up if you like. No, it's fine. Just curious. Well, mine is family-based. Okay. Um, I was just going to say, as a woman in the industry, when you started your business and then had to step away to go on maternity leave. It's a bit of a too far question. How did you feel about that and, and still having a part in the business and taking a step away? And also at the same time, with children growing up in this new world of augmented reality, how do you find that balance between being the Jess, Jess Simpson at home with your children growing up with this technology that could be a, quite scary and mm. and could harm them? Um, like the whole Black Mirror thing, I think it's quite, you know a bit of a, a scary situation at the same time as being just butcher you know part of a 10 billion pound industry i have mixed emotions because there was what i did and then there's what i like to think i would preach because you know i took a six to eight week maternity with my son um because that was still a, my first son so that was very much a formative time of the business and i I don't feel guilty about that because it was what it was and it worked for me at the time, but I didn't want to miss out on anything with the business. Um, And I probably did miss out on a bit of time with my newborn then at a time when also I underestimated the pressures women are under post uh, childbirth with hormones, with sleep deprivation and all the things that mean that you're not going to be 100%. I don't know how Americans do this three months maternity leave and women are supposed to go back to work because... And I'm four months now after my third child, and I'm, I'm I feel like I'm a sixty percent of who I know I can be in in the business in the business world normally or in my general voc- vocabulary articulation everything. Um, but that wasn't in question. I never really evaluated it because I knew that that's what I wanted, and there's no point in in driving yourself crazy. That was what it was, and I. I did it. I loved it. And I, I, I chose to have another child because and another child because that's that's what I wanted for my life. So no point in overanalyzing things that you know you want if that's part of your plan and, and, and your values. The other question really interests me. And I am I've always had this um, the, the, the challenge of blipper is trying to put the phone between us and the physical world. And yet my personal philosophy is that the phone is destroying personal relationships it's destroying how we engage with each other how we um, listen to music how we we capture memories on a screen and not the mental snapshots um, and that is I think troubling to the younger generation um, and it's a, the it's proper addiction that I think everybody has now to a certain extent myself included with blipper I want to try and keep the business as true as we can to the idea that the technology is enhancing our understanding of the physical world rather than taking away from the physical and I think it does that beautifully if you're in the natural environment and you can simply understand and appreciate your natural environment better by bringing it to life with content 
you're still there. And that's where augmented reality is lovely because it very much involves the physical world. Um, but like all texts, we have to be very careful about how we use it. And I now already had this personal conundrum with the digital detox with my child, my oldest child, who can DJ on Spotify. He can't read, but he'll use the images to get to tracks that he wants to listen to. His current favourite is Who Let the Dogs Out? <laughs> who, who, what happened to Barbara Black Sheep? It's so depressing. Um, and we overuse it because I need to have a quiet glass of wine occasionally and you know not have him going crazy in a restaurant or don't know what the answer is but as we try and keep the apps educational we try and restrict screen time where we can but it's the way of the world and we're all going to have to adjust and learn the techniques from each other and best practice um as uh, as it evolves Cool. I think that's all we've got time for uh, today. It's the first interview we've had where there's referenced uh, Who Let the Dogs Out. So <laughs> it's always a first time for some genuine insights. Um, but thank you very much to Jess Butcher. Well, that was pretty awesome. Just listening to a lady like Jess talk about uh, raising a family at the same time as starting a startup and uh, taking it from idea and conception all the way through to this giant valuation. And what an exciting time for the business as well to be starting a business in augmented reality before anyone's talking about it all the way through to now where it's one of the hottest spaces so you could possibly be in and they have a huge strategic advantage and head start ahead of everyone so very exciting things for her uh, rich any other comments on, uh, on on the interview and also who we can expect in next week next weeks here at mindset win we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests we will hear stories strategies tips and tricks told by leading names in sport and beyond who know what it takes to get to the very top there will be two episodes each week packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow search for mindset win on youtube and on your favorite podcast app so next week we're joined by michael acton smith who is sometimes known as mr moshi the Willy Wonka of tech, uh, all kinds of names. Uh, he is the founder of Moshi Monsters, the huge startup success with the company Mind Candy. Before that, he co-founded Firebox and also another company called Perplex City. So yeah, it's great to have him on. And he's got a very, very interesting story about the highs and lows of, of running Mind Candy and, um, and how they built Moshi Monsters, how you know it wasn't just an overnight success. There was a lot of work that went into it. Uh, and they were pretty close to the line a couple of times. Uh, and also more, more recently, he's been involved with uh, the meditation app Calm, which is also proving to be a huge success uh, globally. Um, so yeah, look forward to that. And we're quite lucky to actually get some time with him because uh, he's rarely over in the UK at the moment. He's moved over to San Francisco with his business partner, Alex Chu. Uh, Calm is blowing up over here and, and globally. Uh, their growth numbers are pretty staggering. And so he's uh, decided to move over to San Francisco. So it was a, a rare opportunity to fit into his diary and calendar and actually get to spend the hour with him. So definitely one worth listening to and just a totally awesome guy. Don't forget you could subscribe to us on YouTube, SoundCloud, iTunes and the Google Play Store. Uh, Secret Leaders is the thing you need to search for or Secret Lives of Leaders. 
And we are also, uh, all of our episodes are on secretleaders.com. You can find out a bit more about each episode and the people behind them. And if you've got any comments, simply email us at hello at secretleaders.com. So until next time, thank you. Thank you.